anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Jared. Would you please open to the epistle of James? We are in the final chapter of the letter, and so we are in chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, and before I start, we start digging through the text, I just wanted to, I wanted to start by just giving you a bigger, big picture of what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to study this scripture, but we're going to look at it from two different lenses. What we're going to do is we're going to look, if you see the title of the message, the title is How a Christian Should Respond to an Oppressor. Now, we're going to be talking, uh, James is going to be talking a lot today about how the rich and the people who love their wealth and their possessions can many times become oppressors. And then he talks about how Christians, uh, believers, should respond to that. But in the same token, a lot of the direction of the message is going to be at us, helping us not to become one of those oppressors. So we're going to be looking at how we could, also, we could become an oppressor, but how we should also respond to those who are being oppressed in the faith, in the, um, just by those who practice the faith. So I'd like to start out with this question, and I think we'll probably get some very humorous answers, but I have to ask the question. What is the most ridiculous lawsuit you have ever heard of? Mark. That's on my sermon notes. Yes. The woman, did I hear? (laughs) Same thing over here. Yeah, I get a hot coffee from the drive-thru and I spill some and it burns my leg. Hmm, lawsuit idea, right? Yeah, most people looked at that and thought, that's, what we, that's when we hear the word, um, you know, frivolous lawsuit. I would say that that would be a describer of that. Ben, can you think of another one? Um, Mark, you might be able to chime in on this, but I remember maybe about 10 years ago, um, it was a B&B in Texas, and the guy that broke into the house, the robber, got shot and then sued yes. the homeowner for, it was like for emotional damages. Or emotional damages. <laughs> So the thief sues the owner and probably wins the case. Probably. I don't know the outcome. Probably. Oh, it was dismissed. Good. <laughs> Good to know. Any other ideas? Any other frivolous lawsuits you've heard of? Yeah, Jamie. I don't know if it ever made it to a lawsuit because I don't remember the whole story, but Andy's grandfather, when he was still alive over in Indiana, had a similar situation. There is a rule in their county that if another person's animal crosses onto your property, you have the right to shoot it. So oh. he had warned his neighbor that this dog kept coming over on his property and bothering his animals, and he had asked very nicely and then had asked not so nicely. So the third time, he went outside with this gun, and he aimed at the ground. Well, that bullet hit a rock and ricocheted and hit the dog in the back hip, and then that guy oh. sued him for the vet bills for the surgery to have the dog fixed. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's just a bad bounce right there. Bad bounce. Terrible. <laughs> bad bounce. Any other examples you can think of? 
Yes, Lee. Uh, people had bought a camper, a new camper that had gone down the road, and, it, and the lady or the man who worked on it got up and went back to get a cup of coffee, and nobody was driving down the train. They said, we didn't say we couldn't get a cup of coffee. That sounds like Ron Burgundy right there. Ron Burgundy. Hey, it's got cruise control. I'm just yeah. letting it drive. And they say, cruise control controls speed. It doesn't drive it for you. Uh, what? Boom, that's when they hit the ditch. So funny. I'm glad we were able to start off with some humor today because, yeah, we see frivolous lawsuits appearing all over the place. We hear, it makes us laugh, and we think, how can somebody just do such a, you know, be so greedy as to want to sue over something that we would think is very obvious? Well, today our scripture study focuses on how Christians should respond to rich oppressors who sometimes make them suffer, make us suffer, and persecute them. As we will see, the rich oppressor that James is writing about in this passage could also describe us if we do not have the proper perspective regarding wealth. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to read these verses with you as we start chapter 5 of James, and then we'll, we'll start looking at what the scripture has to teach us about our lives. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, this is out of the NASB translation, just so you know. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your, richer, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Let's quickly pray. Lord, thank you so much for this scripture today. I want to tell you that I just want to share with the congregation that has really been an eye-opener for me, uh, and I'm hoping that the, this scripture will help all of us to see the relationships that we have amongst each other in the faith, as well as those who are not believers in you and the way that we conduct ourselves in those relationships. I would ask that your word today would be our guiding, our guiding light. Help us to uh, adjust ourselves to what the word says and help us not to change the word to satisfy our own needs. Help us to be uh, also open-minded to what you would teach us and help us to uh, keep this in mind every day as we interact with those in our lives. Guide us in all we do, Lord. In your name, amen. So as we start today, I wanted to start on verse 1. And if you look at, if you look in your Bibles, and I know in the NASB version, it starts off with these two words, come now. If you look, if we look back in the book, we'll notice that James used that term one other time. And in a previous message we talked about, it's almost like James is saying, come on, man. It's almost like he's saying that. Come on. Let's talk about this. The first time he used come now, he was talking about people who make their future plans without considering God whatsoever in those plans. Now we're talking about people who have riches, who have wealth, who have possessions, and once again, 
keep God out of the picture and totally want, not want him to have anything to do with their lives. So James is calling out people who are living according to the flesh and not according to the will of God. The people that James is referring to in this passage are those who are rich in earthly ways, but were not necessarily believers in Christ. This would include Christians, non-Christians, as well as Jews who did not accept Christ as the Messiah. And if we go back to the very beginning of the letter, here's who James addressed the letter to. He said, I, this is addressed to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So this tells us that many of the people who may have read his letter were most likely Jews, but who did not necessarily believe in Jesus. So James is addressing the rich because as many times we see in the gospels, it was the rich who rejected Jesus and they hardened their hearts towards him. So what does James tell them in the first verse? He says, the rich are to, quote, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. They are told to weep and howl because they are going to one day experience misery in many different ways. If you look in that first verse, in the NASB edition, it, translation, it says, weep and howl for your miseries. So he's saying this is a plural. There are many miseries to come. What we see is that for all people, you, me, the oppressor, the rich, the poor, one day there will be a day of reckoning for all of us. There is going to be a day of judgment for all of us. But James is reminding these people that one day there will be a day of reckoning for those who oppress. And so James is saying that they will suffer miseries because there will, there will be many. The warning here is that if this attitude continues and these people, the oppressors, refuse to soften their hearts towards God, there will be a day of reckoning. So a question I would like to pose to all of you, and this is just to start, start our discussion today over the verses. How should a Christian view wealth and possessions compared to a non-believer? How should our perspective regarding wealth and the things that we have, how should that be different than those who are not in the faith? Just wanted to throw that out, see if you had any ideas or any suggestions on that. Yeah, Mark. Our wealth isn't our own. Our wealth is what, I'm sorry? It's not our own. It's not our own. Yeah, so we understand that the things that we have are on loan, like they're on loan to us. We don't, even though we may have control of those things temporarily, they're not ours. Uh, they're literally not ours. Yeah. Mary. Yes. Non-Christian mm -hmm. might say, well, I've earned this. Yeah. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because it is my right. So in the non-Christian world, the attitude is, I've earned these things. The Christian perspective is, I've been blessed with these things. Totally different way of looking at it. Absolutely, Jamie. And we need to ensure that we're appreciative of what we have because it's not ours and we didn't earn it. Yeah. So how, how we disperse it, how we use it, it should have a, there should be a big impact on that, the how we, how we uh, choose to use those things. Absolutely. Here's what I wanted to share this verse from 1 Timothy. It's, a, it's actually a passage, but it may be, these might be very familiar words. It's a, it's, it's a long passage, but I think it addresses the question very, very, uh, very well. 
Here's what Paul says to Timothy. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and cover, covering, with these we shall be content. And this is where James, I believe, is his point and matches up with Paul. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then here's the very familiar verse we've all heard, I'm sure, many times. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. From what you just said earlier, we see that reflected in the scripture. These are blessings. These are not things that we have earned. And so he says here, we cannot take, we've brought, we've brought nothing into this world. So we come in with nothing physically, and we're gonna, we can't take those things with us. And so we have been blessed with the things that we have. So this leads into another question I'd like to pose to the, to the church today. Is it a sin to be rich? Because I hear this point being made so many times. Oh, these are the rich. You're rich person, you're evil. They have to be evil because they have a lot of money. So the general question is, is it a sin to be rich? Yes. Uh, no. Your first response is, I hope not. <laughs> yes. Historically speaking, everyone in this room is ridiculously wealthy. Exactly. Uh, particularly compared to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. The second thing that comes to mind is to make sure that we're drawing a differentiation you when know, the term rich is used between somebody who may be wealthy and the rich as a social class. Yes, good point. Because mm -hmm. in, in James's day, mm -hmm. in the first century, the rich as a social class often became and maintained their wealth by exploiting. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's exactly where he takes this passage. He does go that direction. Talk about the oppressed. Yeah. Right, Brian? I don't even think like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them. Yeah. I mean, well, Jacob, money came through some sort of questionable means in some cases, <laughs> yeah. but they were all extremely wealthy men. Yes. I mean, if the founding fathers of the faith were very wealthy, and if that's a sin, then that's a problem because it is. God really granted that to them overall. Absolutely. I am telling you, I think some of you hacked into my, my Word document here because I have exactly what you, get, what you just said. The Bible at no point that, that I have seen, and I'm not saying that I didn't check it from cover to cover before going into this, but I can tell you, I've never seen it said that having wealth and possessions or being rich in those things is a sin. And, we, and I just had two examples. I had Abraham, and I was thinking of King Solomon, the wealthiest king of all time. God blessed him with wealth because of what he asked for. And nobody ever says, well, King Solomon was rich, therefore he was an evil guy. It wasn't what he had. It was what eventually took over his life later on when he let those riches and that wealth and, and the possessions start to guide his life. That's where he ran into trouble. But it wasn't the fact that he had those things. So if it is not a sin to be rich, that's the conclusion we've come to, then the question is, why does James warn the rich about the miseries they will face? He's addressing them as if, you know, he's saying, you folks, you're in a, you're, you're in a, you got a problem here. And we need to figure out what this problem is. Well, the Bible does not say being rich is a sin, but here's the issue. Allowing possessions or wealth 
to run our lives or rule our lives, that's where we have the problem. So it's not having things, it is what position or what are those things doing in our lives? What role do they have? So in the next two verses, he's gonna continue on this on the, and teaching about this and warning the oppressors, here's, what, here's the problem you're dealing with. So verses two and three, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. So these two verses share the effects of what happens when someone places their entire hope in their material wealth and possessions. When men place such a high value on their wealth, they will eventually realize that all of those possessions will rust and decay. Everything physically that we have our bodies included. We don't rust, but we do decay. We age, we weaken. It's part of being on this side of heaven. Everything will rust and decay. And I wrote this down. I said, if I live for the car that I drive, what's the problem with, with that perspective? If my car determines who I am. Well, if my car determines who I am, what happens when it rusts? falls apart, stops running, and ends up in a landfill someday. Where do I put my hope then? Right? My hope should not be in my car. Everything we possess in this world will rust. It'll become moth-eaten. And if we do not, do not look upon our possessions with the proper perspective, it could eventually consume our lives. So here's a big question. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about us. Our, our congregation. I'm talking about the church universally. In what ways has the church allowed money to consume its identity? And I'd just like to see if anybody has any ideas. Have you seen how money has become the ultimate goal or the ultimate, uh, the, I guess I would say the ultimate goal here? Anybody want to give some examples of that? Mark? Joel Osteen. <laughs> Coming from Texas, I think you were really, you're probably more familiar with that than we are. Yeah, it, it has gotten to the point where money and the desire for wealth has gotten to the point where the Bible is being twisted and manipulated into a gospel that it does not teach whatsoever. We call that the prosperity gospel. So if you're not rich <laughs> materially, if you're not getting your prayers answered, then you got a problem with God. God's not listening to you. Why is he not listening to you? Because you're not doing, you, you know, you, you're not living in the right way. You don't have enough faith. We always hear that. You don't believe hard enough. That's why you don't have. Or you haven't planted enough seed. Have you ever heard that one? You haven't planted enough seed. You need to give more to these ministries. And if you give more to the ministry, you plant a bigger seed, you get a bigger crop. I hear that all the time. So yeah, that gospel. Yeah, that. Mm-hmm. James writes when you preached on this last year yeah. about showing partiality and favoritism yes. to the rich person who comes into your congregation mm-hmm. um, you know, who has the means to support certain ministries and you treat them differently or hold them accountable in a different way or maybe not at all than you would someone of lesser means. Absolutely. So yeah, favoritism. Yeah, certain people get all the, the attention. This, you know, the seating at the best place. 
Yeah, so it, it has actually changed the way that the church interacts or treats certain people. Certain people are ostracized and others are welcomed, welcomed with open arms. We definitely see that. Now, how can we keep that from happening to our congregation? Because, and I'm not saying we have this problem. What I'm saying is we need to be alert and very aware that those pressures that we see other people, you know, other churches are that have they fall into doesn't happen to us. So I wanted to ask ask the congregation this question: What ways can we protect ourselves, or what can we do so that this doesn't happen here? Anybody want to share any ideas on that? How could we stop that? Well, I have good news. The next message we're going to talk about that. So I'm going to say stay tuned. We're going to come back to that issue. I propose the question because I'm going to get to that. But what I'd like to do for the time being in the scripture we're at in today, I want to share with you what Jesus says about it. Okay, and, and let's, let's, let's dig this out. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Very, very familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of you. Here's what Jesus says. He goes, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor the rust destroys and where thieves do not break in to destroy it. So if we place our, if we invest what we have, the blessings we've been given in the right things, Jesus says, moth, rust can't destroy it. It's untouchable. If you use your riches and wealth the correct way. So I believe Jesus is teaching us that we need to invest the blessings he's given us, as you've said, into the things that will further his kingdom. And furthering God's kingdom protects those investments from the moth being moth-eaten and being rusting and destroying. So here's another question to consider. How should this impact the way we view church finances? Should this scripture... And should what James is telling us, should that impact the way we look at our the funds we have in the church? Yes. Yes. And I think to apply that question should be maybe when we look at our church budget, this is appropriate for us until I thought it was perfect for this time, yeah. You know, maybe a correct question of application would be to look at our budget and say, based on this budget, what are we investing? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, ask, ask that question. What, is, what, is, what are the funds we've been blessed with that God has blessed each and every one of us with and that you know, he has compelled us to invest into the church? You know, how, are, how are we investing these? Asking that question constantly. What, what is this intended to do? Is this to make our church look be more beautiful or is this to further God's kingdom, right? What is it intended for, Mary? I think the concept of being good stewards with what we yes. have Absolutely. And, I, and that's why, we, you know, we have a committee, we have business meetings where we discuss these things openly. Everybody who wants to attend and members are able to vote. It's very democratic in that process, which is, it makes it transparent. Very important. Because I know, <laughs> what, had been, what did you say the decision that almost split the church was choosing the floor for the, <laughs> for the foyer out here? Remember that? That would almost split the church. And we joke about that, but... It's, I think it's a blessing that, you know, I, I've been to some churches, and I don't know if you have, 
where many financial decisions are made by two or three people. It's not made by the entire church body or all the membership. And I think that is so crucial because if two or three people are making the decision in a closed room and they don't propose that to the congregation, what happened, you know, you may have somebody who brings up a good point at that meeting that you never considered. So, and, and they may be coming at it from a more scriptural background. It may challenge the rest of the members to think about it. So yeah, we're choosing a floor and somebody says, we want to go lighter, we want to go darker, we want to go thicker, we want to go, you know, we were looking at all the options and we discussed, we discussed it thoroughly. And at the end of the day, not everybody got what they wanted. I know that. But at least everybody had a say in it. And the church knew how they were, we were going to be spending those funds that God blessed us with. So, I believe those questions that we just discussed are of crucial importance to the church. If we do not answer both of those using scripture as our guide, then James tells us we are doomed to face many miseries. And he goes, that's the problem. These rich oppressors we're talking about are people who have been blessed with a lot of earthly possessions. They don't want God to have a say in any way that they use them. And because of that, now they're going to be facing a day of judgment and facing some trials. So now we're going to go to verses four through six. And these provide us with examples of how the love of money leads to behaviors that are not honoring to God. And it results in the ruin of these rich, oppressive people. Here's what he says in verses four through six. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So when we look at these three verses, we see the fruit that loving riches produces in the life of those who reject Christ and find the hope in their wealth. First thing he says is that the pay of the laborers has been withheld. So those who glory in their wealth refuse to pay those who have earned their wages the payments that they deserve. Now, this question, I guess this is aimed at all of you, but I'm going to read a quote from a very famous novel. And don't yell out the answer until I want to see how many people know the answer before we give it. But I'm going to read this description of a of a character that we're all familiar with. We're getting close to the season for it. And these are the adjectives used to describe this guy. And I want to see if anybody here can tell me who they, if they know who this is. So this verse reminds me of a very famous character in a novel that we all have seen depicted in numerous movies. Here's the description of the character. He was described in this way. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, Clutches, covetous old sinner. He was hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. How many, by a show of hands, how many people in the room know who I'm referring to? Raise your hand if you know who I'm referring to. Okay, I'm going to ask Sam, who is it? I don't know, I didn't raise my hand. Oh, you didn't have your hand up. You were sitting there, I thought you were getting ready to raise your hand up. All right, Josh, how about you help us out? Who, what, who is that? Say again. Ebenezer Scrooge. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I remember that quote so well is, Jack, how many times have we watched the Muppet Christmas Carol? 
How many times? Fifty? Maybe fifty-seven times? And we watch it about three or four times every year. Age doesn't matter when it comes to the Muppets. I'll just tell you that. Doesn't matter. But yeah, Ebenezer Scrooge. What do all of those adjectives used to describe Scrooge have in common? Here's, what some, here's some of them. Squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous, all of those. What do all those have in common? All those adjectives. Other than describing Scrooge. <laughs> What's the attitude? How, what would you say his attitude is? Brian? Selfish. Selfish, all mine? Pleasing himself. Yes, what's that? Pleasing himself rather than others. Yeah, pleasing himself. Everything is mine, mine, mine. Jack, we used to watch a show where there was this guy, his name was Stingy, and he would say, mine, mine, mine. That's all he ever said. Everything is mine. He would just see something laying along the road, pick it up. It's mine. I found it. No, everything is mine. So, yeah, each of them describes a person who wants to have everything for himself and here's the big thing. He was unwilling to share anything that he possessed. So three ways that loving wealth and possessions impacts the attitude and values of people. Here's the first way. It leads to a covetous spirit where everything supports our own desires. That's Ebenezer Scrooge. A covetous old sinner. I don't think Dickens could have said it any better. Covetous is the word. So the rejection, this leads to, okay, everything I'm going to do is for my own furtherment. It's a rejection of Christ, and it leads to a covetous spirit where everything a person owns goes towards supporting their own desires. Second effect, and this is in verse 5. If we go back to verse 5, and that's at the top of our screen. Verse 5 says this. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I was, I was reading through some different uh, commentaries looking at this, and I like the word Matthew Henry used. He used the word voluptuous here. Voluptuous. So a voluptuous attitude is what verse 5 is talking about. The only goal in life was someone who has become totally saturated by their possessions, and that's totally controlling them. The only thing they're seeking in life is pleasure. That's a voluptuous attitude. So this eventually becomes the only desire that the people are, will, are seeking to satisfy. While others are being slaughtered and suffering, these rich oppressors are only concerned with fattening their own, their own wallets and living a luxurious life. Now, a question that this definitely bring up is how do we see this reflected in our own society? Can you, give me, can you think of any examples of how a voluptuous attitude has taken over American culture. Any examples? Seeking pleasure. Some of these things. Having, remember, the, I, I use this, in, I feel like I use this in every sermon. Just bear with me. I, I take a Burger King all the time, right? Have it your way, right? We need to have everything our way. I can tailor your burger to what you want on it. I'm not a pickle guy, so I always say leave the pickles off. Jack, still trying to forgive me over that one. But yeah, we can order things our own way. Everything is tailored to the way we want things to be. I can, I can adjust everything. What do, do you want a kosher meal on the flight? Do you want this meal? You know, I can adjust everything. Everything is for my comfort. And so we see that, that idea, that attitude 
starts to be starts to control the way that we share the blessings that God has given us with, and it, and it can be replaced with a voluptuous attitude. Finally, this me only attitude. I'm the only one that matters. So the third sin that the love of riches leads to is a me only attitude. In verse six, we go back and review this at the top of the screen. It says you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And I wanted to share a quote from what, what Matthew Henry says about this. And I think it describes it in very plain words so that each of us can see the application. So here's what Matthew Henry says. Big quote, but we'll get through it. He says, they oppressed and acted very unjustly. Who's they? He's talking about the rich oppressors. To get estates. When they had them, they gave way to luxury and sensuality. Till they had lost all sense and feeling of the wants and afflictions of others. And then they persecute and kill without remorse. Are you seeing the attitude? Uh, the attitude is transit. There's a transition going on here. When money becomes the most important concern, then the feelings of others is totally removed from that person's uh, thinking. They pretend to act legally indeed. Since they condemn before they kill. But unjust prosecutions... Whatever color of the law they may carry in them will come into the reckoning when God shall make inquisition for blood as well as massacres and downright murders. I find that sentence very encouraging. Even though there are people that are going to be prosecuted and unjustly suffer, Matthew Henry reminds us there will be a day of reckoning for all people. God will hold them accountable one day. Observe here, the just may be condemned and killed, but then again observe, when such do suffer and yield without resistance to the unjust sentence of the oppressors, this is marked by God, to the honor of the sufferers and to the infamy of their, their persecutors. So when the righteous suffer and don't speak up and don't Condemn like Jesus did. He never yelled a word of revenge to the people who were murdering him. God sees this. And he also sees what the persecutors are doing. This commonly shows that judgments are at the door. And we may certainly conclude that a reckoning day will come to reward the patience of the oppressed and to break to pieces the oppressor. And that's what James is speaking of in this verse. That, you know... There are going to be rich oppressors in this world. It's part of our fall, the fallen nature. But the, it says the he says here, the just may be condemned and killed, but then he says, justice will come. So even though the poor may be unjustly accused and suffer, God knows the suffering these people are facing, and he will reward all men on the day of judgment for their deeds. So this leads us to our applications. How can we... Take what James has said and apply it in our own lives today. I have three ideas I'd like to share with you here. One, one thing that scripture does teach us is that we need to speak up for the unjustly persecuted and for those who are being oppressed. Scripture does say that it is important that we speak up for those who are being oppressed. I, put, I chose Amos. I went back and looked in the Old Testament. The prophets, when they came to Israel, they were always addressing a sin that the people were being, that they were conducting or an unrighteous thing that was going on. And they were telling the people, you need to wake up, change your ways because God is going to judge you. And Amos spoke up regarding an issue when he was 
when he was serving as prophet, there was a lot of uh, unjust behavior going on in the Jewish courts. And so these, these three verses, I wanted to read them to you because I think they describe very well what we, should, what we the Christians, should do to speak up for people who are facing this uh, oppression. He says, for I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent for it is an evil time. Here's what he says to do. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. And so that's what I put up here. The first thing is as, as believers in God and those who claim to be a Christian, we, need, we are called to hate evil, love good, and when we can, establish that justice. Speak up for those who are being oppressed. Second thing we should do, we should not fight fire with fire. I know that's, we see it all around us today, don't we? We see, okay, someone says, yeah, there's, there's racism. How should we fight racism? Let's burn down cities. Do you see what I'm saying? Is that solving anything? Is violence solving the racial problem? Most Americans look at that and say, no, that's not solving the problem. Jesus says that's not the way to solve the problem. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 through 42, and these are some of the uh, very familiar words as well. He says, but I say to you, do not, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And this goes back to what Jamie said earlier. And that's why I love the way you guys are always, you're thinking at a, at a really good level. And I can always tell because you always say what's in the conclusion. You're already thinking that. So what we learn from this teaching is that everything we have been given to us from above is a blessing. We do not have the right to hold things back from those who ask help from us. Now, should we practice discernment when people ask us for help and try to find the best way to provide them that help? I would say yes. But we are not in a position to hold back and say, I'm not going to help these people. This is my money. These are my possessions. These are blessings. I believe what James is referring to here is that he says when the righteous, even when they're suffering, they do not resist the judgment of the court. And the reason they don't resist is they know God has everything under control. There will be a day of reckoning. Rather than seek revenge and fight fire with fire, we're called to speak up for those being oppressed. And also, the other part I believe he's saying here is do not resist. Accept what you can. Speak up when you can. Allow God to be the just judge over the situation. Finally, setting an example in how we treat others in the faith is very important. The way we interact together. But it's even more important the way we interact with those who are not in the faith. And here's what Paul said. And I want to share a scripture with you. From This is what Paul tells Timothy. And this is uh, in 1 Timothy as well. He says this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Isn't that the exact opposite of Ebenezer Scrooge? Exact opposite. Storing up for themselves the treasures of the good foundation for the future so that that may take hold of what of which is life indeed. When we are willing to do this with our actions as well as with our words, we will set an example that will help others know better the God we serve. And this, these are not easy words today that Jesus taught. It's never easy to turn the other cheek. It's not easy to allow other people to trample on us and persecute and take take just people to court and sue them. But we see when we don't seek revenge, but we rather allow God to deal justly with those who oppress, we're told that we'll be blessed by doing that with a peaceful spirit and it will allow us to be, our testimony to be emboldened and be even stronger. And I wanted to end with this. There's a question I'd like to end with because we're dealing, we're living in a very tumultuous time. We're living when there's a lot of division in the country. And this is what I wanted to propose. I wanted to propose this question. How can we stand up for the faith as well as show the love of God with those whom we disagree? And I think it's really important because we, we, there's this idea, we see it in the culture. It's this group versus this group. I'm not in that group. They're my enemy. I've got to be on guard because the man is always trying to take me down. Or this group is always trying to undermine us. So my question is, listening, hearing what we've heard James teach us today, how might we go about doing that? How can we both witness to those who are suffering, but yet be bold in our faith? Yeah, Ben. I would say so much of that answer is wrapped up in how we treat people, um, mm -hmm. whether or not we show respect for their viewpoint, uh, mm -hmm. whether or not we're willing to engage them in discussion, and honestly, just being kind. Yes. There's just so much vitriol uh, that I, I feel like I spend 40% of my week interacting with non-Christians, undoing the poor work that other Christians have started. Well, and to hear you say that, Ben, I, I was listening to a book this week. It's called Tactics, not Tic Tac. Tactics by, his, his name is Greg Kukul, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a, uh, an evangelist, but he's all about apologetics and how do we engage the culture. And his first point that he always makes is exactly what Ben was saying. The first point is, rather than get on the defensive, when somebody questions your faith, Rather than get on the defensive, the best thing to do is to get to know the person you're having that conversation with. Ask them from the very beginning, you know, what is your opinion? How did you come to that opinion? Get to know where they come from. Show, show an interest in people. Show a kindness to them. Take down those barriers of division right off the bat, and then you can have a more, you know, I say respectful discussion over your faith and sharing that with somebody else. And that's that, that's that kindness, rather than just saying, well, you know, I'm a Christian, this is what the Bible says, and you need to deal with it. <laughs> rather than that attitude, it's okay that you, you've made this statement, why do you feel that way? What has led you to come to that conclusion? And then it, it, it removes that, that, uh, that hostility that usually pops up early in the discussion when you're disagreeing with somebody. I wanted to share the, these just some parting words with you. 
Uh, what, does a, what does the scripture teach a Christian to do when encountering oppression? That's the title of the message. Here's what we're instructed to do. Scripture says to hate evil, love good, establish justice, invest in treasure in heaven, and not hold back anything we have from those who ask of us because it is the Lord who has blessed us with everything that we have. If we strive to live in such a manner, you know, Christ tells us, you know, if you, if you love me, you'll, you know, you'll follow my commandments. You'll do what I, what I've left you to do. You'll do those things. And he also says, those, those of you that do those things, I will acknowledge you before my father. That's the hope we have, everybody. We're going to face persecution. We're going to, it's going to be, it's not, it's going to keep, I, I really believe it's going to keep becoming more difficult in our culture to be a Christian. I think there's, I think the challenges are, are building. That doesn't scare me. <laughs> not scared by that. I'm actually encouraged because that is what, you know, we always look in history and see what has caused the church to grow more than anything. Persecution, suffering. And when it gets harder, the church will get stronger. It's what I firmly believe. And that's why I think James is teaching this to these people saying, yeah, you're facing oppression. But when you face it silently, you lean upon your brothers and sisters to provide you that encouragement. Don't seek revenge. Allow God to be the judge and to make, and he will establish justice in the future. He will take care of these, these issues. That removes the fear. We know God is in control. He sees everything that's happening. He knows, he knows what we're facing. And, and he's the one that we can rely on during these times. And so these words, I believe, are very encouraging. And James is trying to encourage a church facing persecution. And I think these words were perfect for what they were facing. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Pastor Jared Smeltzer and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbc-ashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again right here next week.